Hello and welcome to episode the 28th of Tamper Tantrum. My name is Colin Harmon and I am joined as always by my good colleague Mr Stephen Layton. How are you Steve? I am very good, thank you. I've got to get a new intro. Like, I can't do the very good every time. There, surely there must be times where I'm really not good. But I am very good, so yeah. yeah. How are you? How, how did the run go first of all? Because that's how we started last week, last time's uh, podcast. Uh, how, how was your 140 kilometre run? Ah, it wasn't that far. It was about 138 kilometers. Oh, um, okay. Oh, I'm always <laughs> exaggerating. Um, yeah, it was. It was awesome. Like it was actually incredible. So we we did about 42k the first day, then about 34, then about 33, and then about 28, I think, on the last day. So we we're kind of tapering down. It was incredible, and it was just there were times where you just there weren't people for what seemed like hundreds of miles around. We got some good weather. We got some bad weather. Had some ups and some downs, and yeah, it was amazing. I'm kind of paying for it now, though. I was um, I went to a chiropodist or a podiatrist, whichever way you like to call it, the other day, and she, um, yeah, she was zero crack. She was, <laughs> she was no fun at all. She <laughs> took it personally how how bad my feet were, and she, uh, yeah, she had quite a rant at me. So apparently, there's two things that that make your feet bad. It's ramping up too quickly and running too far distance and I did both of those things because I only started running in January so <laughs> she got really angry at me but fuck her I had a great time and now my feet will never be the same again so uh, yeah well you it don't need great. your feet you've, as long as you've got your barista hands you're fine aren't you really that's it yeah and there is there is another there is another canal there's a, the Grand Canal and the Royal Canal and the Grand Canal is 138 kilometers, and the Royal Canal is about 140 kilometers. And runs into the same river in the west of Ireland, just further north. So I have my, my sights firmly set on that, so I might drag you along with me. Oh, fantastic. Can I please not come to that? Well, you can drive the van. How about that? I'm, I'm good at the driving. I could definitely do that. So we should not awesome. turn this into a running podcast. Uh, we should perhaps talk about some coffee stuff. Uh, and I believe yeah, we've got some housework agenda. to get through first. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've got some housework to get through first. So Jen Ruggalo, uh, who is the... The brains in the background has given me a list of stuff to talk to first. And the first of those things is uh, we do Tamper Tantrum Instagram account. So you can now follow us uh, via the magic of the internet on Instagram. And the username is tamper.tantrum. And um, yeah, we have amassed a total of 29 followers on there. Wow. Yeah. That's good. We need more um, though. Yeah, we definitely need more. I think 26 of those are different incarnations that you have on the internet. And uh, But yeah, so follow us on there. And uh, there's lots of pictures of buttons and aeropresses and things of that kind. So uh, do that, definitely. Well, the other thing is that um, we're going to Prague um, next week. And I will have control of said uh, Instagram account for Prague. Uh, and I may take many, many pictures of drunken baristas at parties uh, at the barista camp part of the Tampa tantrum there so that's worth following just for that isn't it i mean who doesn't like to awesome. see a barista drunk and being sick in a in a gutter somewhere it's it's the kind of yeah, thing i like to see pictures of yeah and this, that's the sort of stuff that we need to put up there as well and i think uh, there's been a bit of a uh, a switcheroo going on with the with the uh, the lineup unfortunately stefanos uh, I, I always murder his surname dematiotis how's that I need to concur or uh, disagree. I think it is. Okay. It is what it is. It is what it is. So he he, <laughs> uh, 
he and Una had to um, pull out, unfortunately. Uh, so I think they've got a project going together in Berlin. So we've had uh, some two new speakers drop in. So currently the lineup is um, is actually a pretty cool lineup of speakers. Uh, so we have Joanna Alm, who's a co-owner and head roaster at Drop Coffee in Stockholm. And I've never been to Drop Coffee, have you? I have not, uh, but I, I've met some of the team from there, and every single one of them are incredibly opinionated in a very good way. Um, and I'm sure that that talk is going to be one that will um, be very opinionated. <laughs> I think it, it's going to cool. be, uh, and actually quite geeky as well. Um, all of the conversations I've had with them have been very, very geeky. Um, so I, I think it's definitely, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see it. It's going to be, gonna be great. There is something of an engineering um, uh, shortage in Sweden. You'd be shocked to hear. And um, you'll also be shocked to hear that a couple of years back there was a, a bit of a construction industry uh, collapse. So as a result, there's lots of Irish engineers that work in Sweden. And uh, we therefore have this uh, really odd customer swap thing going on with Drop Coffee, where we send all of our customers that are going to Sweden there. And when they come back, they come see us and they bring us coffee all the time. Um, and one of our customers was in the shop one day and they said oh I'm going to I'm going to Stockholm where should I go I said well I'm going to drop coffee and the guy goes cool and then the guy right behind him in, in the queue tapped him on the shoulder and went I work at drop coffee which is one of the weirdest things that's ever happened at 3FE but um, yeah so I feel it's sort of we have this bond with them yeah. uh, although I've never been there myself next up is uh, Chris Hendon who is a computational chemist and known to most of you as the dude what makes the clever stuff happen with uh, Maxwell Colonna Dashwood. Uh, and I've batted emails with Christopher Hendon and he is very, very smart and quite blunt. And <laughs> um, But yeah, he knows a lot about the stuff that I don't know a lot about and uh, very involved with the water program that Maxwell has going on. And he's also coming to speak about stuff that he hasn't presented before. And he's really, really excited about the event. So we're delighted to have him too. I think anybody who's met Chris would have the same opinion as if you just said that he's very blunt, he's very to the point, he's very much a scientist, but talks dead clever stuff that I understand around about 3% of, and the other 90% I have to go away and look in big books to understand what he's saying. But when I do find out what the words mean, I suddenly go, oh, oh, oh okay. So, um, yeah, Chris will be a great speaker, I, I am sure. Uh, and great that we've had Maxwell, and now we, we, we're having Chris as well. Um, you can go and watch Maxwell's Water Talk from Birmingham last year, um, which is a, a very good talk. Yeah, Chris Hendon, the David Walsh of coffee. Next up is Adam Neubauer uh, from Emma Espresso in Prague. So obviously it's good. And I think uh, as an ongoing thing, as we run this event in kind of three, four, five cities a year, we're always going to try and get someone, um, like a hometown representative. So it's good to have... As far as I know, uh, Adam is one of three owners. Uh, so there's an E, an M, and an A, which gives us Emma. And Adam is the A. I'm not sure who the other two are. And also the 2015 um, Czech Barista Champion. And the first ever Czech semi-finalist uh, in WBC, which uh, he was very yep. proud of, and, and quite rightly awesome. so. Um, Our next speaker then is someone that you know very well, is uh, Tibor from Hungary. So Tibor is somebody who used to hang around the internet forums. That sounds awful. Um, <laughs> he used to hang around the internet forums um, saying things on the internet. Uh, am I right? Yes. Yes. No, very much so. Yeah. Uh, back in the day. And then he's um, also a, a big fan of Hasbeen as well. And he has a shop in Hungary 
I believe, and my, its name escapes me right now. Uh, espresso but, um, Embassy. It, it's right? actually it's Espresso Embassy is the name of it. That's all. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Tibor is going to speak there as well. Uh, next up is another um, one of those people that's probably smarter than you and I put together. Well, definitely you put together anyway, uh, is Chahan Yuretsian, who's the researcher <laughs> based in Zurich. Uh, he does a lot of work with SAE and has worked with, uh, I think, Nescafe and other global coffee uh, uh, companies in the past. And currently we're researching at what point chemicals extract in coffee and when we can sensually determine them and at what point we can taste them and, and interesting things like that. And I think in the past he's done a, a lot of work with um, that aroma thing where you pierce the top of a coffee pot and that kind of stuff so very heavily involved the SAE on the board I think if I'm not right or if I'm not mistaken uh, I don't know or I, I, think, I know he's heavily involved in the education committee part um, okay yeah, recently sure promoted to the board by a guy in Tamper Tantrum and um, <laughs> yeah he uh, he uh, yes that should be another uh, really interesting that's, that's a gift you don't want isn't it <laughs> <laughs> And finally, we have Erna Tusberg, uh, the manager and trainer at Roast Bar in Munster. Um, and that's Munster in Germany, not Munster in Ireland, for those of you of Irish persuasion. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I've never met Erna, but I'm very much looking forward to that talk. Yep. Okay, to, to speak awesome. of people of Irish persuasion, yeah, we actually have a lot of listeners in Ireland. I was going over the stats recently. We have a heap of listeners in, in Ireland and in the UK. But weirdly, we have like a billion and two listeners in uh, in um, uh, Korea and China and uh, Japan and kind of the whole Asia Asia part of um, of the world. Um, I found well, it really amazing. We should when probably... You start, getting the, start getting into the stats, it's really scary. We're not blocked in China, which is kind of good, I guess. Well, we should probably um, do a, like a, a lower RPM version of the podcast so they could understand what we're saying, because undoubtedly we're speaking too fast, as we always do. I'm sure that that would help a lot of Irish and English people too. I don't think... Uh, <laughs> I think that would be an option that would be taken up by many. Awesome. So, yes, Irish listeners, and following on from All Things Irish, uh, we have a guest for you today. Um, so, known throughout specialty coffee as perhaps the second most famous Irish barista of all time. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so... Um, is uh, someone who we've been trying to get on for a long time and schedules have been colliding and she's downright refused, I'm sure, as well. But uh, we've somehow managed to wangle on. So joining us live on the wire from Chicago is um, the one and only Mr. Stephen Marcy. Good afternoon. Good morning, Stephen. Steemo. Good afternoon and good morning. There it is, Steemo. Hi, There's uh, two of them. Hi, guys. How do you feel about the whole Steemo thing? Not great, I'll be honest. Not great. Well, know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to recall the first time we did it. It was a lot. Uh, very early on in Tumper Tantrum like episode one or two I think it came up Jeez. yeah but it comes from a good place though does it? yeah <laughs> I remember I think I heard you guys doing it and I texted Steve as I was listening to the podcast and I was like not cool with that or something something to that extent and well, that was I, I think mistake. that was the, completely the first mistake <laughs> honesty was is always the first mistake so I, I, yeah. am, the, I am the king of lot, not letting a joke die like I still call Colin Gentle Giant from episode two. It's like I yeah. will not let things disappear or go ever. And if you tell me that it's slightly even, you know, a, a little ting of bothering you, that's it. It stays forever. Um, yeah, don't show me your kryptonite. 
<laughs> and the, the less funny it gets, the more funny it gets for Steve as well. So oh, God, yeah. be warned. Yeah. Oh, I chuckle away to myself for hours and hours. <laughs> but the, the second someone else starts laughing with you, it's less fun. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I don't want people to enjoy it as well. This is my own little <laughs> private thing. You know, I, I right. kind of keeps me happy. All right. um, cool. So we're we're going to start at the beginning with you. So um, you've you've worked in coffee a long time now. So what? Like you must have got two thousand six, two thousand five, that kind of stage. Uh, earlier than that, actually, it was more two thousand and two. Well, wow. I mean, I I guess I don't know. I don't know if I have a kind of a day one kind of sense of working in coffee because I used to work in an Italian restaurant in my hometown, uh, in Scaries, in just north of Dublin, and my brother was working as a barista in town at a place called Rio Coffee Company and I can remember him coming back there was just a lot of talk in the family about him kind of learning how to make coffee properly it was this big deal and I at the same time was trying to make coffee at, after in the restaurant on this kind of shitty gaggia that they had I, I told myself I wouldn't swear and then I heard you swear earlier on and oh, now I've, I've steak, already Steve. I feel sorry for your trainer I, <laughs> just, it's a little harsh um, do, but anyway you know, though, the, um, I've, had, I've actually I've, on that swearing thing I've had to change the thing on iTunes that may contain like abusive, and I never, sw- I've never swore once on the podcast, and it's purely because of Potty Mouth Harmon. I've had to put this little thing, explicit lyrics thing, on the iTunes thing. Okay, I'm sorry. I won't, I won't do any swearing for the for the duration of this show. Gives you a lot it's of street credibility, though. though. Yeah, that's too late. Yeah. Anyway, so I would make, I would try to make coffee in that machine, and I kind of would take bug my brother for like tips on how to texture probably, but I hadn't a clue. Like I think it was. It was really like, could I make a good Irish coffee and could I make the cream not sink? You know, that was kind of the goal back then. <laughs> but like, so from the, that's the earliest point that I can think of of trying to make coffee better or trying to, make, you know, brew it better. And then I ended up getting a job in that same coffee shop chain that my brother worked in, which is sadly no longer around. And um, that was a, it was a good chain in Dublin called Rio Coffee Company. There was like five or six locations, I think. And, uh, that one was a particularly beautiful shop as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was gorgeous. It was on Exchequer Street. And um, it had like the, one of the kind of rare things of having skylights in the back. So you had this gorgeous natural light coming into the back of the shop, which, you know, a lot of coffee shops, you have a nice front window lighting, and then it kind of gets darker as you go further into the space. And this one has just had tons of natural light. And it did lots of cake and coffee, which I always think is funny. People, cake and coffee is such a great combo. And it, it's... Yeah. it's uh, and maybe it's only because I live in the States, I live in Chicago, and you don't see it as much over here. But is, is cake and coffee as big in Europe as it ever was? There's definitely... Well, like you got butlers in Dublin do... It's chocolate, I suppose. Chocolate, but, like, but a slice of cake, it's easy. <laughs> yeah, Austria, it's a big thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Strudel and things like that, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree. It's just I easy to do. Like, when you get outside of London in the UK, you find a lot of that cake and coffee type thing going on. I kind of, there's a lot of tea houses and coffee houses that kind of slice of cake kind of very traditional style and you don't seem to see it so much when you get into the, the cool coffee shops though it's kind of weird yeah it's like my favourite kind of food pairing is coffee and cake cheesecake really really good cheesecake not shit key oh I just did it not bad cheesecake <laughs> <laughs> not, not bad cheesecake let it go but you won't be able to good it cheesecake Okay, I'll at least try. Funny. <laughs> so if you see if you see if you see if the menu says bad cheesecake and good cheesecake, <laughs> you're suggesting don't try it with a bad cheesecake. It won't be good. I hear the bad cheesecake is really good. <laughs> That's your bad cheesecake this week. <laughs> um, so anyway, and I got I got a job in that place, and, and and I remember my brother trained me in a day, and I I I wish I could remember clearly what what that looked like, but I just remember him saying. 
don't worry about the coffee. That's the easy part. The milk is a real skill. And, yeah. that, and he just spent, uh, we, <laughs> we, we furiously made cappuccinos for like, you know, a couple of hours. And like I could do, by the end of the day, I could do latte art. And I, it was one day and I, I don't remember, I don't remember how he taught me. I don't remember any of it, but I think it was with that kind of like, you know, no holes barred brotherly kind of affection of like, you know, slapping you across the head when it wasn't right. You know, was like, no, listen to me, listen to me, do it like this. The same program that you employ today. At the <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The brother program. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, and so I, 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 you know, started making coffee there and thought I was really good. And then a woman called Judy Murray, uh, Julie, fantastic. Judy Murray came in. She, the, co- the coffee shop used Beauty's coffee and she, uh, was a trainer for beauties and she came in and she you know I, I, I had that kind of early arrogance of thinking I made the best possible coffee because I could do like uh, uh, hearts and a macchiato um, and I'm just remembering was there a term once for latte art and macchiatos was it macchiarty or something like that <laughs> <laughs> well if there, if there wasn't there should be yeah. there's a new temper tantrum competition that's it. Mackie, yeah. Well, okay. yeah. Anyway, so. We might uh, see a fair bit of that in WBC next year. Mackie, yeah, what's there? We'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. So. Really good. so and, and I'm remembering one time uh, James Hoffman came over to um, to stay with me for a few days in, in, in my hometown in Dublin, and he, uh, we, I had a small Dalla Corte that, uh, what was it called? A super. The super, oh, I forget the name, but was that, that first home Dalla Corte machine? Oh, it looked and, um, like a, it looked like a cyborg from Doctor Who. It's the ugliest yeah, home espresso I, machine I have ever seen. It is horrible. It's horrible. Oh. <laughs> Beautiful to it use. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it worked pretty well. But I remember James put a blog post up, and it was filled with just lots of uh, <laughs> Maggie Arshi shots. Um, but anyway, um, for my wife and my dog just came home. Hi. Um, anyway, so the uh, I could do. I thought I could do good, make coffee because I could make good latte art, blah blah blah, and the usual story. And then Judy walked in, and Judy said, "Coffee's not very good, actually." She's like, it "Sounds like you haven't cleaned your machine in a long time, and it just tastes really bitter, and you're not grinding fresh, and blah." And just tore it apart. And uh, ever since then, I kind of have tried to make make good coffee. But the thing that's interesting about Rio is that. The reason I got into coffee was, was because of what happened in that shop, and it was Sunday mornings in that shop. And um, there was a certain... There's a, it's a, you have to understand, the shop's in the centre of town, and you get a lot of shoppers, a lot of tourists, a lot of uh, people going to work. And there was something about the Sunday morning customer that I just loved, because they were there to be in your space. They weren't there because they were on their way to something else. They weren't grabbing a quick coffee on their way to town or on their way to work. They, were, they specifically went out of their way to be in your space that morning. Um, and that, I've always, I always kind of felt uh, that that customer was, uh, I loved serving that customer more than, say, the commuter customer in the morning. That there's something about, there's something about kind of making great coffee in that context felt more right. Yeah, because it's, it, it's almost more experienced then. Like, they're there for that experience it's Sunday it's their time they've got the newspapers they want the coffee and whatever else. exactly some cake whereas the other guys are just like it's more sustenance based yeah I've never thought of it that way actually before but yeah but yeah I, 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 lo- I love that and I love getting everything right and at the time that meant like playing the Amelie soundtrack just right you know and <laughs> making sure they got their their like slice pan toast with their butter patty just perfect like it was you know this wasn't it was the early days of toast bars but it was very simple and uh 
it was I love that and, and in many ways I just wanted to make sure everything was right for that person and it was like I can remember it was as simple as like getting the because at the time it was like cocoa powder on the cappuccinos and it was about getting that as 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 uh, like even as possible and so I thought I thought I was making everything doing everything as well as I could and you know it was Judy who said like the coffee's not great so in some ways ever since then I've just been trying to make the coffee good so how did you end up at Pulis though? Uh, actually, Judy. Judy. Judy said Judy was put in charge of kind of revamping uh, the beauties on Grafton Street location. Um, which, for those of you not in Ireland, well, how many billions in Korea? How did you say? <laughs> Eight. Eight. Eight billion. Yeah. Uh, uh, beauties is a very uh, long, you know a very famous coffee brand in Ireland. Um, a bit of an institution in many ways, and their coffee shops are are known as being these kinds of uh, uh, kind of sort of uh, what would you call them Colin just sort of famous spots in Dublin basically and it's very kind of they're on the tourist trail very often and yeah I think like the flagship store on, on Grafton Street has um, oh now I've completely forgotten the architect's name but has a very famous architect who put these uh, Harry Clark Harry Clark yes and yeah it's worth going and sitting in that building and it's like when you're a kid you go to beauties with your mum with your granny and you get like a, a sausage roll and kind of yeah uh, it's it, there's something more about the building than I don't think people can even understand. Yeah, that's that's fair. I, I, like it's mentioned in Ulysses by James Joyce. You know, it's that it's been around that kind of that long. And on Tamper Tantrum. And on Tamper Tantrum, <laughs> <laughs> such lofty heights as Tamper Tantrum <laughs> and Ulysses. Um, anyway, the uh, uh, they uh, so she was kind of put in charge of revamping the coffee program. And sorry, that noise in the background is my dog eating uh, eating his his breakfast, which my lovely wife put right beside me and the computer <laughs> we, we like ambient noise ambient noise shows that you're a real person uh, and you're not made up on the internet yeah exactly yeah okay <laughs> anyway so um, yeah she was put in charge of revamping the coffee program and wanted someone to um, kind of help with that and uh, kind of asked me to help and I actually can I can often remember her when she was hiring baristas and she was trying to find people she met there was some guy from Sweden who came in, and I, me- I can remember so clearly the day she was like, and Stephen, he had his own tamper. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Get out of here. Like, mind blown. Just like, that's incredible. That is, that's commitment right there. That is. Who did he think he was? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. And now, now, now tampers is something you kind of take up room in your, in your house. Anyway. So that's kind of that. That's how in there, and I worked there for a while. And then I worked kind of ran coffee program there, and then they did a big annual show, uh, KTEX, big kind of food show in Ireland every two years. And I worked in the stand there, and I got invited to the World Latte Art and World Coffee and Good Spirits competition in Greece in two thousand and five, and uh, then uh, placed third in both of those competitions. Um, but you know, I to give it some context, I think for the Coffee and Good Spirits, I used pre-ground Kenya coffee off the shelf at my local supermarket. Uh, and I, it was set for filter grind, and I used a French press. And it, uh, and I remember often Tim Wendelbo was there, and it was the year he won the World Cup Tasters Championship. It was the first one. And uh, I remember him recommending to me to use, a, to use a Brazil instead of a Kenya, and just being like, what's a Brazil? <laughs> 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 you know, there was no, no concept whatsoever. And then... Trolls Poulsen was actually, com- he competed in that same competition. And I remember being backstage with him and just having like my like 
you have to imagine like I opened my suitcase and I got two French presses and a bag of filled pre-ground coffee off my, from my local supermarket and I'm like off we go like here we are and I look over and Trolls is there with his entire station set up beautifully with you know all of the kind of accoutrements you'd expect from a kind of uh, you know world class barista and then uh, I remember specifically asking him could I borrow a cloth or two and you know, you know competing baristas like are quite particular about their cloths I like, and I just like oh can I borrow some cloths man do you mind I, I, I <laughs> some cloths. and I remember I think I can't remember if he said no or not I think he but I remember the look he gave me was just kind of a mixture of confusion and disdain um, he said not yes yeah <laughs> uh, and then he went on to win the World Versus Championship about two months later in Seattle. Right. And uh, I, I actually I saw him there. So he, seeing him in many ways and seeing his kind of commitment and seeing in, in, in a very short period of time, seeing the kind of the competition in Greece and in the world uh, was sort of what propelled me to being like, oh, this is a thing. And so that's a very long answer to your question. Sorry, I'll try to not talk so much. That's a good answer. So how did you, how did you end up in London then? Well, I met James in, in Athens, in Greece. Um, he was at that same event and we met there and we got friendly and we just stayed in touch and uh, sorry James Hoffman um, and Annette was there as well and, and just we, we kind of came close and we just would all talk an awful lot and I remember I was in college at the time doing a degree in music composition uh, which I did like six years of and which has helped me uh, <laughs> it's helped me in some ways but also not helped me at all academically yeah. Um but uh, the and just James and I would just talk all the time. I remember getting the train home from college an awful lot and being on the phone to James the entire time. And he'd be he at the time was working for Spaziali, and he had that interesting job of being. I'm sure everyone knows this, but kind of that he was a machine a, a, a barista trainer for a machine company. And if you were a roaster who bought that machine that company's machines, you could get to use James as a trainer for your new coffee shop that you opened that you started selling coffee to which you don't see much of anymore yeah. is, I don't know is that still a thing in the UK Steve is that right yes yeah no yeah, there's still quite a few people doing that and, and, but I think it's it, it's not it's only with it? the leaders really they kind of started that stuff you know where, where they they really wanted to put themselves out as the, the, the guys that knew about coffee whereas I think before that it was very much like nobody really cared about the coffee it was you know just chuck it out there and let it go there's still a few people right, yeah. Controls. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, so I saw it, I was I was working in Beauties and James was doing that, and so we would just talk all the time about about stuff. And over time, that just kind of morphed into an idea. Oh, and then I spent a summer in Vancouver, um, working for the Intelligentsia distributor up there, and but I also ended up working at Elysian Cafe a bit and kind of very, got to know the Vancouver scene, which at that time was it was sort of Vancouver and Seattle uh and I to a lesser degree Portland maybe but specifically Vancouver and Seattle were really kind of with Heinz Public Market and Elysian and oh so Elysian was Alistair Drury's yeah Drury not Drury okay yeah I've never met him I remember just being terrified of him on the internet I used to like read his posts and I was like about to type something I was like I'm not fucking responding to that Chris again sorry (laughs) very very intimidating very like was that was was that like a scary place to go work in comparison to where you come from I I think I should be clear I think I did like so it was a few blocks away from where I worked and then I I ended up doing one or two shifts there randomly so saying I worked there is a little bit kind of uh, overstatement but 
I was there all the time and uh, you know we would just kind of go there after hours and hang out there and and they'd like there was a very close-knit family who worked there but Alistair was a very particular kind of operator and I remember he had a, he, I, I picked up a couple of things there sort of in every work you pick up different things right that you kind of carry on forever um, and what I picked up from Elysian was this kind of sense of this is the cloth for this stuff and it lives here this is a tome it doesn't go over here it stays here and it was like when you go out to clean the tables this is the cloth you use and it lives here and when you're finished cleaning you put it back here and it doesn't go anywhere else and be having that kind of intentionality behind almost everything in the shop um, was really kind of fascinating to me and sort of that sense of that sense of restraint that sense of kind of just very uh, I guess intentionality is the right word and thoughtfulness yeah so fast forward a little bit then you you were obviously then in, in Tokyo with James when he won in 2007 yes so at that stage like did you did you think that competition was was like a big part of your future or were you just there helping James out or had you even thought that much about it was it just like a trip to Japan whoop de do? no I was into it I'd, I'd kind of tried it in, you know I, I was you know I, it's weird people some people I, I did compete in Ireland uh, two times or maybe two or three times before I won in Ireland um, but the first time I competed the competition was like three judges uh, I did like I did double shot cappuccinos and eight ounce cups with chocolates on top because like nice. didn't know the rules at all. My sig drink was a cappuccino with honey at the bottom uh, that I mixed in with espresso, a, <laughs> a, a kind of a spoonful of Häagen-Dazs ice cream, and then some mint leaves on top. Like, nice. and and was you know, was this the one where Paolo Tulio was the judge? Maybe, but it was yeah, it was a long time ago, and and there was a guy called Billy Walsh. Billy Walsh. Yeah. Of- Five senses, or yeah, no, seven seas, or se- yeah. seven wonders, or something like that. And Billy, Billy often was always was would always he always won, and I would kind of place like second or third. But I like, I I you know I wasn't competing in the sort of modern sense of the term because I knew I never read the rules. I just had an, a sense that he make these drinks, and I was just turning up in the day, and just clueless. You know, I really wasn't. I kind of I just had that kind of arrogance of, of the young barista who thinks they just because it, it's so easy for a coffee person to know more, way more than the person on the street. You know, you, yeah. you, you it's so easy to get to that point where you feel like you've got a, you've amassed a wealth of knowledge and it's nonsense, of course. But you get you, often the ego that we all know that comes with that. And so I had that in spades. And uh, then the first year I tried to do it properly was after uh, Tokyo. And so. And it was kind of after seeing James do it and be familiar with that. And, and, and James was encouraging me, saying, you should try to do it. Why not? Give it, give it a go. So I was like, all right, why not? So heading into Copenhagen then, there was uh, Kyle Glanville uh, was competing for the US. Mike Young was competing for Canada. Yep. Um, you had um, Soren Stiller Markison. You had Daniel Remeden. There was like a lot of like really big names. Like... I was only really getting into coffee at this stage, but from what you've told me, um, you you weren't expecting to win. Of course not. <laughs> and either was James. James and I, the goal was make finals. Yeah. That was like your goal because it's so it's so laughable to think you could win it. And then and 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 and, and we went in for it that way. And I had I had trained, uh, in planning for Square Mile after we had done a road trip from Vancouver down to LA me and Nat James and we had a small film crew with us although that film never saw the light of day thank 
which is kind of good. Um, it will someday. Nostalgic. <laughs> not, 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 not I wonder how many but films there are that haven't been made in coffee. I, 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 I know. see film crews everywhere, and they never get made. I know. <laughs> I know. It's kind of you got to give Brandon Loper credit for just getting it done. You know, yeah. just just fair play, like. But anyway, but the, the um, point where they say, "Can we interview you for this?" and I was like, "I'm like, what's the point? You're never going to actually throw it <laughs> out there." It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we should, Why? we, should, you know, that's what tap, that's what Tamper Town should do. Is you should be the facility that connects all of those kind of fledgling projects together and builds them together into one mega kind of movie. One amazing twenty-seven hour film. Exactly. <laughs> and you'll get that. some weird kind of like people through the years aging. And just watch as their answers get more and more jaded each time. Yeah. <laughs> See how many uh, times somebody can change their opinion as well. Yeah. Is that... so, so just basically, I, in that trip, I ended up in LA and I ended up helping train the opening crew for Silver Lake. So Kyle kind of like hired me on. Like I just kind of did a little bit of consultancy there for about two months. And so I was part of the training team for uh, Intelligentsia Silver Lake. Wow, I did not realize that. Yeah, so that and that's kind of so I I was going to try to kind of stage there, I worked there, but then by the time I got down there, um, Kyle said, "Would I mind helping with training?" Because uh, he, he just there's a bit some staffing changes there, and he's like, "I need some help." And so Kyle and I became very fast friends. Um, you know, he was a groomsman at my wedding, and you know we're very close. And so going into Copenhagen, to your point, there is like I thought Kyle had it in the bag, like convinced. You know, I, I knew I had good coffee, but I. And I, I did work hard towards it, but I just didn't think for a second that I could, yeah. I remember the feeling so, around that competition that you were one of the favourites, though. I, rem- I, I, I distinctly remember the, the buzz about you competing and James and Annette working with you and the experience at Tokyo the year before, that you, you were talked about as one of the top three who were going to win it, like that everywhere, everybody who I spoke to. So, I, I, yeah. I don't, but I so... Think, I, I, yeah, but I think I that was, I I was I knew by proxy of with James sure, and also like Tim Styles or Tim Williams, he had helped me tremendously an awful lot. Um, he him and I were good pals. We were actually flatmates in in, in London, and um, he uh, he flew back to Ireland and helped me enormously preparing for the Irish competition. And you know, he was that kind of the guy who would just help you wash all your dishes every single time, taste everything with you, and he was just I owe him an awful lot for that. And then. So I felt an almost enormous pressure just not to let that team down. Yeah, I, I, this I, this was actually the around about then was the time when I met you first, and I just started working in Coffee Angel, mm-hmm. and um, you and Carl had just been to Chapter One to uh, do like some sort of a a mock run of your Sig beverage for like some food reviewers. Oh, yeah, and I, I opened the the door, and I, I remember like because I'd only read about you on the internet. And I opened the door to jump into the passenger seat, and then it was like this really random thing where I opened the door, and looked in, and then I was like, "Oh!" Because Carl never mentioned you were there, and you were just like, "Hi, I'm Stephen Marcy." I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> Stephen Marcy sitting in the oh. van!" <laughs> um, but I remember I asked you how it went, and you were like, "It was a fucking catastrophe. Like it was just a fucking catastrophe." And you just did not seem confident that anything was going to go well, or that anything. No, I, I, know, I yeah, completely blown out. Well, because it was just, the signature drink, it, it was so difficult. I, I haven't made it ever again since. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it fucked up in the semis. Oh, I swore, now I swore. Um, <laughs> uh, it, in the semi finals, my drink failed miserably and it did well in the fi- and, it, and it was okay in the finals. But it was like, 
I was, I, I mean, and and so I was help, I was helping endorse Carl and I were like endorsing this milk dairy in Ireland, um, uh, 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 Glambia, uh, Avonmore Milk, at the time, and so they we were kind of doing a bit, and they helped me with some media training things like that, which was really helpful, and so we did. Uh, that was one of the events we did for that. And I think the sick drink wasn't ready yet. And this was like maybe two weeks before the world's thereabouts. Yeah. And it still wasn't ready. And I, um, I, put, I think I put together some kind of other drink real quickly for them, for yeah. all the bunch of food journalists. And that, so yeah, it was a, to quote you, a fucking catastrophe. <laughs> to quote you, quoting me. But I, I, double quote. The, the double quote. The drink, the same drink, I, I really struggle with that because... I was working with a woman called uh, uh, B. Vo of Bees of Bloomsbury in London. Yes. And um, she helped me enormously as well. And we spent months trying to work on a drink. We were trying for ages to make a red velvet drink because, you know, it's something James had talked about before, but how so many signature drinks are brown. And we were trying to change that and try to make it not brown. Mm. And, you know, James had his kind of crazy ways of trying to do that by kind of just, you know, using, using science. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I just felt it, you know. <laughs> yeah, just go for it. So, coming from this near catastrophe, then, like, at, at what point did you come up with the idea to put three cups on one hand that obviously won the competition for you? That was obviously the clincher, yeah. Um, <laughs> where where that is that from? Just, remember, okay, for anyone who's completely confused by that, okay, so within, you can still see this video online if you search Stephen Morrissey, Copenhagen 2008. Um, Stephen, in those days, people poured at their side table and brought them to the judges. Now, um, but there was one part where you did this, and you turned to the judges, and you had three cups on one hand and one cup on the other. And as ridiculous as it sounds, like I remember myself and Carl watching it. I know we watched it like I watch at home and he watched it at home. And the next day, Monday morning, six a.m., we were like, "Did you see him put the three cups on his? Oh my God, that's like." groundbreaking and it was just the most amazing thing we'd ever seen this was is, it such a big deal in your head at the time or this is like some metaphor that everything of everything that's wrong with specialty coffee you know that like something like that is is the take takeaway and not like <laughs> not like oh he used a coffee from Rwanda in the competition that was really interesting it was risky and he was you know it's like no he put three fucking cups in his hand that's like, <laughs> it's like that's like a metaphor for everything that's wrong with our industry right now um, and didn't you appear in Barista magazine with the three cups on the one? I did. So well? listen, I just I worked in I worked in a restaurant for a long time. I I, I was a busser. I was a kitchen. I you know I cleaned cups. I I worked up from as a kitchen porter in an Italian restaurant back in my hometown. And you were just you had to bust stations all the time. And it's yeah. faster doing it with your hands than trying yeah. to do two at a half time. And so I was practicing with James and one day, and I remember saying to him like, "Can I just do this? Like putting these onto the tray seems really silly." And, and 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 James was like, "Oh, you'll mess it up." I was like, "I really won't. I've done it a thousand times." And I started just doing it. I think I, I think what I probably did was I started clearing clearing. You know, when you do a run through in your practice session, and you kind of bring them all over to the excuse me to the sink. That's what I would do, and I was like, "Can I just do this normally?" And I remember James was very like dubious, and then he was like, "Well, if you think," and and then I just did it, and it, I, I did not expect that kind of response, which is kind of ridiculous, but um. But yeah, it was, it was funny, and yeah, ah, that wasn't. It's again, it's weird that that's a takeaway from everybody. it was really. It's one of those small things. But every every well, every great routine has something like that where it's just something small that you kind of cling to. It's just yeah. That's, well, the big, that's the, a, it's the, it was that, and then it was a thing of not telling the judges what the coffee was or what it was going to taste like. Yes, 
and that and that was I remember that was a I think that was a James idea possibly I can't remember we we so him and I would like you know be talking constantly about all this stuff and you know a lot of the ideas kind of just kind of came about of the conversations we were having and it was kind of a way of like James has this nice line of like it, it's not like a tennis match you're not trying to beat the other comp- opponent you're just doing what you can do as best as you can and be yourself and that's like the hardest part of a competition is being yourself on stage and not being some weird kind of notion of what you think the judges are looking for or what your yeah. industry expects of you and so uh, Jim we had this idea of let's have fun with it like you're not going to win so let's have some fun <laughs> and so we, we and always, did you know yeah well we always thought we thought like if you were a judge you know you think about the judges you know doing their thing and it's like you well judges are terrified right judges at a, at a competition they're really nervous and they really they know that this person has trained for months and months and months preparing for your competition and they feel huge pressure to do well by you and to hear what you're saying and take that in properly and use that information to help inform their, their, their experience they're going to have in a second and that's that's a lot it's very it's very difficult and we thought it'd be fun to make that more difficult <laughs> uh, and that was really that, that was really the motivation it was it was more just to kind of play with the judges a little bit but that sense of mischief i think is something that that is present in most great barista competitions is that thing where I think what Gwilym Davies says is that like you should go into every routine uh, doing something that will make them change the rules next <laughs> yeah. year. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which I think is a yeah an interesting way to look at it as well. And then the other thing I just quickly that I remember from that routine is that you need to to like whisk a small amount of liquid and you got the world's largest bowl and the world's largest whisk to make it look as dramatic as possible mm-hmm. which is something that I've, yeah, I've always pointed to I'm a, I'm a, yeah I'm a big believer in having a second string that you can make in two minutes and make it take five minutes oh yeah definitely so then once they raised your arm and, and, and you won the competition how, how did everything change? Uh, well nothing changes right away there's the, there's, the, there's the weird lull of like two months where nothing happens you do a bunch of kind of quick interviews and quick phone calls I remember I did an interview with, um, Han, what was that radio station you loved? Oh, well, 2FM was... Who was the guys? There was a... Colin and Jim Jim. Colin and Jim Jim. I did oh, a... Remember yeah. them? That's the uh, big leagues. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if that's... A, but it was a you know, popular morning radio station. Ireland, for those of you out there, is, is a huge radio listening country. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I believe one of the most avid radio listeners out there. And... Um, They're listening now. Not as much as in Korea and Japan and China. (laughs) No, because that's billions, and Ireland's only four and a half million people. So, so anyway, um, uh, they—I did an interview with them, but I was on a bus trying to get. I had no money. I was—I completely spent all the money I had for the trip, and I had no money at all. So I had—I had enough money to get a bus, the coffee collective, where I blagged money off Klaus Thompson to get a ride to the airport, and. on that bus journey, I was on the phone calling Jim Jim, and halfway through it, I had to get off the bus to kind of, and I was like, sorry, lads, hang on a second. They're like, why? I was like, I'm just getting off the bus. And it was kind of, <laughs> it was kind of weird. And they're like, where are you now? And I, and I didn't know where I was. And so I kind of wandered around Copenhagen. And I had no, like, sat nav on my phone or any of that nonsense. So I was completely lost. So that was kind of a weird, surreal, kind of like the morning after kind of thing that I, I had no money. And I was trying to get the coffee collective to blag 10 euro off Klaus Thompson, which I think I still have not paid him back. Nor should you. Nor should I. Yeah. So, so that that was how things changed. And then you have a weird two month lull where nothing happens, nobody calls, nobody. There's no no opportunities. And then the first trip to Origin 
came along and uh, uh, and then you get that weird scenario of like what you know do you pay ask people for money do you get do you get you know just what do you expect what do you ask people to kind of for and you're kind of looking to James and to Klaus and to all the previous world champions about um you know what do you how do you how do you do handle this business part of it and, and it's it's still a problem today and you speak to Hide or Peter or anybody and they'll say it's it's that's a challenging you need help in navigating that because you've no idea. You're suddenly, you know, you're a barista who doesn't make much money and suddenly you're somebody who, who can command a, a, a surprisingly high day rate uh, for doing events and stuff. And, you know, you're very conscious that there's co- large companies looking to leverage your title uh, to help them sell more product. And how do you, how do you navigate that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a, uh, it's something that I'd like to try help people do help more in the future with all these all these competitions and all these national champions is what do you how do they navigate that world then um that's the thing because you're you are expected to do a certain amount of uh free work and i think um uh like even from like from my own perspective i've never won the world championships but i've definitely done a lot of that kind of stuff over the years just from doing a few world Mm -hmm. championships yeah um and like you do get to the point where you're you get asked to a lot of stuff and I can't even imagine what it was like for you. And like, where do you draw that line between, okay, I'll just, I'll chuck a few weeks of doing this for nothing. And then also I haven't got any money left and I need to charge someone. Like how did, how do you decide what to charge her and what not to charge her? And- it, it depended on who was calling basically. So if it was, there was a general rule. So I always remember the, the, the day, before I went to Klaus's place, I think I went to Cafe Europa uh, it's a famous coffee shop in Copenhagen, and I had breakfast uh, with 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 Trolls Poulsen and uh, Bjorg Brent and uh, uh, who else was there? I think some of the, the crowd from Barista Magazine, Ken and Sarah, were there as well. But I remember at the time I was being very much kind of like, oh yeah, sure. I was just looking the day, and oh, isn't that great? And oh my gosh, yeah, what a wonderful, you know, everyone's so nice, and blah 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 blah. And being very kind of just like overwhelmed and stuff. And it was trolls and Bjorg were like, stop it. I was like, what? And they're like, stop it. The whole humble thing. It's like it's not it's not helping you. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't like I was feigning it. I was genuinely just kind of like so completely overwhelmed, and also very very aware of the fact that I was lucky on the day that you know that you do the same top six again, the scores might change. And not having any kind of sense that I am kind of now of some kind of, uh, you know, some, that overnight I suddenly have the skill set that, you know, is kind of command, you know, is, is stratospheric or something. And, but Trolls was like, this isn't good. Like if you keep going around saying how you're kind of shrugging your shoulders like this, it doesn't help you and it doesn't help the industry. You know, people need to kind of like have you stand up on a stage and be like, here's why I'm the world versus champion. And he was very, very, the two of them were very, very avid about this. And, and so I did kind of learn to sort of go up on, when I started, would start doing the circuit of traveling, to sort of have a certain degree of swagger. And I remember it actually, it, it hurt people, it hurt my reputation an awful lot. I mean, a lot of people in Europe sort of uh, kind of, I, I would hear back through the grapevine, people were like, oh, Stephen's changed. He used to be so kind of nice and humble, and now he's all kind of pompous and arrogant and blah, 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 blah. And I hadn't really changed at all. It's just that you need to be, you need to have a certain degree of confidence when you're doing on stage stuff. Otherwise, people don't want to see that. They don't want to go see somebody be like, oh, shucks, well, you know, I just put the coffee in the machine and luckily things worked out. Yeah, yeah, and I think like that. I think maybe it's just it, it's just looking back, but to me, like you were the last of there was about it was Klaus, James, yourself, and Trolls, and I'm trying to think, and probably Fritz as well. 
and and those five world champions were were champions that there was there was almost like you were put on such a, a pedestal mm. whereas today there's many aspects of specialty coffee that many people stand on but in those days it was the world versus champion and that was it you were like you were like the the voice of god almost you know it was that like you are the one you've been picked this year you will represent all of us whereas today the world versus champion doesn't really represent everyone it kind of they're just one of many is that fair i i no, i also think though 2008 kind of backwards there was a winner and there was nothing else the second place and the third place didn't get talked about so much whereas since then you know, we've started to have all stars where they're not necessarily like all winners, you know, kind of competing in the all stars events and, 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 you know, getting work on the back of it. And I think that was the biggest difference was when you were the winner, you were the only guy that got the prize. Whereas now I think there's lots of people that walk away without winning but are still getting a, a prize and some kind of income from doing the events and things. Well, I, what, I, what I like to think as well is if I, if I can, is that the sort of way of thinking that. James and I had very competition that and, and your, I liked your word mischief, Colin, that like, you know, use it to use it to say something, use it to bring something fresh to the stage. I think that has prompted such such a such greater diversity in the in the competition kind of you know, and what people are bringing to the table. And, you know, Colin, you're a perfect example of that. You know, you try different fresh original ideas every time and you're, you know, you know, you're, you you built an international reputation based off the routines you did, whether they won or not. So to, to Steve's point, I think Steve's exactly right. That that's and that's great. And you've got the Matt Pergers of the world. You've got you know, and it's it's not. And I think an inch, the internet, of course, is making the world made the world smaller. I mean, back in two thousand and eight, it was still Flickr. You know, yeah. the, that was still the main. That was our social media was Flickr. Klaus Thompson, when we were interviewing him in Seattle, said that. Uh, that he remembers you setting up his Flickr account <laughs> in Bern, and that was kind of like so that had more of an impact on him than to winning the competition. Almost it like it made him accessible to this kind of world audience. So it's a uh, yeah, I remember those days fondly. Um, yeah, so you within this, you spent about a year traveling, and I remember seeing you popping up at different events here. That actually, and you you brought me along to host. I remember in Milan, which is a, a so really you, great. So you could work, and I and I walked around. <laughs> it was uh, yeah that was amazing though. We, had a, we had a great time annoying the hell out of Cosimo it was awful music selection just to be clear that, that really was true Colin did work an awful lot and I did walk around and fresh, uh, press the flesh with a lot of people I think I, think I, I was but you thir- had to though that was the thing Is that it was, was a little bit of that people that and just thoroughly do, thoroughly done as well with the uh, with the that kind of circuit and you know uh, yeah but I, yeah you were, you were great that trip I remember that Steve, you're very, you're very quiet this whole time. When are you going to... I'm listening. I know, I've got questions at the end. I'm letting Colin do this. I've got, I've, I've got some stuff for you to ask at the end. I'm going to let you uh, carry on. Yeah. I'm enjoying listening. We're, we're, playing, we're playing good cop, bad cop. He's going to hammer you. That's hour, hour, in hour three. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so somewhere, somewhere in and around this time, um, within this year, uh, you finish up at Square Mile, and at, at the time, the Square Mile was very just... It was growing, I think... By the time I'd gotten to uh, go to some of the, the taste of the West Coast stuff, you'd already moved on, or else I think you might have been traveling at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you went to Intelligentsia. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, yourself and James I mean, are, are very close, and there's a lot of stuff that I can imagine goes on there that you don't even want to talk about on here. But there's, like, I remember at the time, like, the impact of that was that I remember coming down and to, to Coffee Angel again and, like, getting to the van, and Carl opened doors, <laughs> like, Have you heard? And I was like, Have I heard what? And he was like, It's Stephen. <laughs> I'm like, what about Stephen? It's like, 
Stephen's gone. <laughs> it was like, like it was, it was massive news. Like I think you're overstating it just a tad. I am, but like for our little tiny community, it was like you were, like you were the, you and James were like the, the two beacons, you know, especially for baristas, and it was, um, yeah, it was, it was massive eruptions all there. And I remember James putting on this, putting this post on, on on Jim Seven saying, you know, like, Stephen's going off, we wish him the best, this is great. And, like, that was a... It, it must have been odd to lose, to leave a job in such a public way. Or was it that public, or was it just... No, it, it, it was. And it was... Um, I mean, look, there's, there's, there's a number of reasons why I stepped away. Um, uh, but one of the big ones was that because I had started doing so much travel... Uh, I mean, and, and Square Mile was very, very close to me. It was a very big deal to leave Ireland and go to London and... You know, and it was it was tough in my relationship with my, my girlfriend, now wife, and you know it was it was a uh, you know I was there from the very beginning, and it was kind of you know I remember I, I slept in that roasting works an awful lot, and you know that was where my home in London for a while was up, up underneath that that uh, railway line in that in that in that space. I, me- I remember Steve coming up and kind of helping us with roasting stuff and all that that whole world. It was really fun. It was great to be a part of that. But when I, once I won the competition and started traveling, it was that kind of moment of, God, I know nothing about coffee. Because you go to a farm and you're like, I just don't, I don't know what I'm looking at and what it means in the, cup, in the cup. I don't know, like, that tree is taller than that tree. Does that matter? You know? <laughs> and uh, Deaton, Pete Piggott, who I used to, uh, is an old friend, used to work in Beauties with me. Now, he now is, a, uh, I think, the buyer and head roaster at Toby's Estate in Brooklyn. Um, Deaton and I used to joke about it being like coffee has these moments where you feel like you're in a party and you kind of get to know everyone in the room in the party and you're like cool I, I know this room I know all these people there's Kevin there's there's Dorothy and you're like oh what's that door over there huh and you kind of go through that door oh there's a whole big room in here a whole other yeah. party and it keeps happening in coffee where you keep you feel like you just just when you start building some confidence that you you've got it down something happens where you're just thrown for a loop and you realize oh fuck I know nothing and that's that's I think probably part of the draw on coffee is that seemingly this ubiquitous item that that's that's you know that seems so simple you know grind it and add hot water and filter it um, has so much more to it and and that's kind of I think what keeps it so much so so much of us left uh, you know in this career but I so to that point I'd been to Origin and traveled the world all of a sudden and realized that my learning curve needed to be maintained this kind of trajectory and that I I. What I was learning at Square Mile, what I was working on, was kind of operations and sales, and it was it was stuff that I would eventually kind of realize. You know, I, I think we all need to learn at some point, and it's 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 tough for all of us who aren't kind of of that discipline. But um, I needed to learn more about coffee first before I felt like I could throw myself into that world. So that was kind it's of the main reason. You and, and Deaton there, Stephen, because like I was to- I was yeah. I was in Columbia last year with Deaton, and I was talking to him about you. And we were talking about the first time that I met you both, and you were both in the window of Bewley's, <laughs> and I was yeah. walking along the main street, and I was waving at you through the glass window when you were on the the roaster in the shop. You used to be in the main window there, and it, yeah. was, it was hilarious. You, you were like you were like the show ponies in the window, weren't you? Like, <laughs> the live models. <laughs> but God, that, that roasting, I, I think working in that counter has. You know, as I said before about working different places and having it stick to you, like that counter in Beauties, um, it was a, I think it was an L5 uh, Probat, the electric one. Mm-hmm. Um, is that an L5? I think so, yeah. I think it was. And was it an L12? I 
think it might be a twelve. No, it was, def- it, was, it was definitely it was definitely only a five, but um, you know, you had very little control over it, and we would roast right there in the window on like, you know, Grafton Street is like this pedestrianized street in Dublin. It's like millions walked up and down it every day. Um, five billion Koreans walk up and down it every single day. Uh, but uh, five billion and two. If we're going to continue that trend of exaggeration. Um, so we would roast on that counter. And, but the great thing about beauty is being such an institution is that you just get all classes of society coming in. And so Deet and I had to learn how to sell Cup of Excellence Brazils to grannies. And, you know, and, you know, and selling all, and you, you, you learn to build a kind of, um, what I call it, reading customers, you know. You learn to what as they as they walk towards you, you you're taking in their entire their their body language, the way they dress, the way they talk, everything about them to kind of sense what coffee they had. And also, if you needed to move a certain coffee, say you're sitting on tons of Kenya and you want you needed to move because it was getting old, how did you, how do you how do you sell a Kenya? And like I'm not going to use the words words highly highly acidic, but I can say really juicy and sweet. And de- developing a vocabulary and sort of a a tool kit that would help you sell any coffee to any person has kind of been something that, that's been very helpful for years. Just Sorry, just you, I, when you said that, it, remi- it reminded me of that. Because c- I took it horribly off topic and off, off where we were going, I'm going to pull it back on. And You, you were talking about with working at Square Mile, becoming the champion. Yes. Do yes. you think it was a problem that James had won the year before? So you'd already spent a year as a, as a company kind of doing that touring thing and you know a, a member of the team being taken away and then all of a sudden you were champion and there was another member of the team that was doing the same as they'd done for the past 12 months and, and Square Mall was in its very origins at that point wasn't it I mean it was without a, without just... a doubt when James won I remember I, I, sitting beside Annette in Tokyo and Annette turned to me and we kind of like we hugged and then it was like Christ you know the year we need to start a company and he's going to start traveling around the world um, like this doesn't help and so it it was very disruptive and it was, but you know, Annette had just won the World Cup tasters, so it was James's win, her win, and my win. Kind of did put us in this kind of like global reputation before we'd ever done anything, you know, and that was that was that was huge and that was great. Um, and then you know, it had this weird scenario then of James and I go, going around trying to find wholesale accounts and walking into coffee shops who had no idea, you know, of that world and were totally unimpressed with us and were kind of trying to kind of tell them how our coffee is good. You know, and it was that was a weird juxtaposition. But um, uh, me that w- me traveling so much was absolutely meant that I couldn't really be of a massive benefit to Square Mile at the time either. And James is very, James is very good about that. He's like, you need to travel. You know, you need to. You won't get a chance to do this. There'll be a new champion in eleven months. You need to, you need to use this time. You know, he knew it. I knew it. So that's kind of that was part of it. So yeah, yeah that it was one difficult. of those things that a big company can swallow, but a small company in its infancy, when, when like cash flow and just even cash itself is is a is a big issue. It must have been a big burden to them. It was, and the funny thing is, when I joined Square, when I, when I moved to Intelligentsia then, and they were kind of keen on me still kind of doing that circuit and maintaining a kind of uh, that visibility because uh, you know they they definitely liked that they were getting getting someone in their staff that had that title. Um, uh, but after a while, I, I quickly. Uh, I actually, I think my, my, my agreement with intelligence this time was that I would take a certain salary on the on the understanding that it would be kind of, I would still do some kind of this kind of traveling work and on the speaking circuit or training circuit or whatever it was. And after a few months, I said, actually, you know what, I'd, I'd like to just be here all the time. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop traveling as much because I just, it was, it was you know, it's, it's too much. 
which is yeah. the, novel, the novelty wears off and when you're seeing the world on that kind of uh, through that kind of lens let's say it just becomes everything becomes a bit kind of uh, becomes noise and becomes you become numb to it do you have any regrets about the the year as the, as the world champion aside from intelligentsia and square mile and everything but I mean just if you could go through that year one more time as the world champion would you have done anything different or would you do you think that you you nailed it because there's always that talk about oh what will this Barista champion make of their year you know it's a good question um, thank you <laughs> you're good at this <laughs> <laughs> no I, I don't know man I think it's uh, I travel a lot I mean I travelled so much um that year and you know there was I, I didn't get to, I still haven't been to Africa I've still never done I mean I've been I've been to Morocco but I've never been to East Africa I've never done Ethiopian Rwanda I'm sorry I didn't get that in so I missed EAFCA I think I didn't I had to go to some other event instead I'm sad about that but I did a lot of like I did Asia I did South and Central America I got to judge an awful lot. I got to see an awful lot. I ate chicken testicles. Yeah, you uh, did. So many chicken testicles um, <laughs> in Taiwan. Um, but I there, it, I don't know. I, I, I actually never thought of that. Cause I, 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 and I guess I suppose I feel I'm not a... I don't tend to dwell on things in the past, you know. Mm-hmm. Char, Charles kind of he's a very close friend, and him and I kind of... The way he kind of framed this for me one time, because I was asking whether he had regrets about one, something one time, and he says, no, he's like, I had to make that decision at that time, and dwelling on it has no, has no value. That was the only decision I could have made then, because my state of mind at that time was that, and it was a result of everything that had come before that, and that's why I made this decision. And I kind of subscribed to the same thing, that like, I did, I did an awful lot then, and it was great, and, you know, but I ultimately wanted to have a, a different kind of, be in a different kind of, live a different life. Yeah. And the lore of intelligentsia must be massive as well. Like, yeah. how did that come about? Was it like uh, I suppose I didn't realize you had that link with them as from the the Canadian distributors, but like intelligentsia yeah. was was uh, I mean, it was it, it seemed to me like the only other place you could have gone. Yeah, and I and it was kind of also I had just kind of experienced the first kind of you know year of a starting up startup company, and while it's terribly exciting. Um, I sort of got that a little bit out of my system, you know, in some ways. And so I didn't necessarily, you know, did, did, did that context. So, so many, so many champions start their own business after they win. And I didn't because I just kind of helped start a business. Cause I, and, and I was like, okay, this is cool. I like this, but now I've seen the rest of the world and I want to see more of it. And I want to be in a position where I can do more of it, but still be learning all the time. And I had a very good relationship with Intelligentsia and, and I was chatting to Doug and Doug was like, well, come on over, you know. So uh, that, that I, had never, I actually never thought of it that way. So that probably is one of the reasons why I didn't want to open my own thing. And, and then, yeah, Intelligentsia was just, was at, you know, at that time especially, was just kind of the gold standard for so much. And so, so many friends worked there. When you went in initially then, there was like Intelligentsia was heavily involved in competition and they had... Like Kyle Glanville obviously was uh, competed the same year as you, and then after you, the year after, if okay, correct me on this, if, uh, but there was um, three baristas that made finals, and I can see all of their faces in my head. There was it was uh, five. I think it was I think it was five. There was Ryan Wilbert. There was 
um, dude what lived with him whose name I've forgotten Devin Peaty Devin Peaty it was four yeah. sorry it was four and then there was Nick something <clears throat> who, was the, who was the favourite um I should have done my research. It was awful. No, it's fine. So it's, it was. I it usually was, can it was, these off because it was the like to me. It was the USBC. Like that USBC was the one of the most incredible. And Mike Phillips was there. And were you, and was, you, you? You were there for, weren't you? No, no. I watched it on the internet. I was oh, sitting. Yeah. I was like at home, terrified watching. It was Devin Peaty, Brian oh Wilbur. It was um, Nick, Nick Clark, Nick Griffith. Griffith that's it. Sorry, yeah. Nick Griffith, and Michael Phillips. And it was just like those four were just. They just absolutely scared the hell out of me. And, and then it was it was Scott Lucy was the other competitor in the mid yes. finals, and then it was so it was four in telly, Scott Lucy, and I think it might have been Mike Marquard. Yeah, uh, yeah, and Scott Lucy had his liquid swords signature beverage, didn't he? He did, yeah. There you go. And that was the year. That was the year, Mike. We had a so I had done a little bit of training for since working for them. I would kind of do competition training for them sometimes. So they'd flown me out to do competition training a few times. So I kind of had been involved that year, even before I came on full time, and I think actually. It was the regional that year where Intelligentsia placed first, second, and third in the West Regional, um, which is one of the first times we had like the competition layout. Remember when they when they changed it to be kind of in the middle, and he had audience members either side. Yeah, I, I did it in London. That was real fun. But um, Intelligentsia, so we we did really well in L- in LA. And the goal, what the I think the rule at the time is, you had to place either top six or top three uh, in a regional to to get company support to go to a national and Mike didn't that year I think he placed like fourth or fifth or something and he paid for himself to go and he won that year so his story like was particularly kind of beautiful that year because he had just mm. he kind of was he'd fallen to the back of the pack sort of and then then worked worked his way up to the front again yeah um but yeah that was that was that was mental the, the, the competition culture was so huge back then but it's important to kind of point out that it wasn't this case of like it wasn't like the. Uh, it wasn't like we were forcing everyone to compete. It was like if you want to compete, we have mechanisms in place for you to compete. It was a cultural thing, wasn't it? Because absolutely, it was, yeah. And there were so many great braces working there that everybody wanted to step up. I suppose. Yeah, exactly. So, and, uh, yeah. How did that like? Okay, so f- f- from this side of the water, we saw you going there, robust champion, uh, and you went to intelligence and you didn't work bar. You did some, maybe helped out with some guys with their training, whatever like that. So how did you develop, how did you become a grown-up at Intelligentsia? Like how, did, <laughs> how did that evolve? Yeah. yeah, it's very weird to kind of go from a startup to uh, Intelligentsia, like one of the most successful companies in specialty coffee. Um, uh, well, I joined as head of education, so I was joined as head of training. And I had, you know, and Doug said, do you want to live in L.A. or, or New York or Chicago? And I, I chose Chicago because it just kind of felt like L.A. had gotten so much investment and that it would, you know, that we knew that there was a need to bring Chicago stores up to the same standard as LA because it kind of, it wasn't that it had fallen behind so much as that the focus hadn't been on them. And a lot, of, a lot of new ideas had been tried in LA and they hadn't been really kind of brought back to Chicago. So I felt there was more work to do there. <clears throat> so we moved to Chicago and had, had a training and, you know, my, my team was, you know, was, was it was a number of, a number of educators. At the time they were called directors of coffee. But, you know, Intelligentsia, to this day spends a huge amount of money on retail training we have at this point we have 10 i think 10 retail educators full-time people salaried who spend the entire time training our retail staff um which is a huge investment and you guys would, would know um so it's like 10 educators for 10 stores and they uh in amongst those was mike phillips and charles Rubinsky. 
and so um, Mike and Charles and then a few other people who kind of moved who kind of who are great too and um, th- we started building a training program and I, mean, I, th- I remember at the time the stores in Chicago like had different cups and different stores different standards and different stores so it was a huge amount of work to do and just getting a lot of that stuff brought together like you know how do we do we all make a cappuccino the exact same way and do we all make that stuff so that was the main body of my work for a long time was was education and building educational programs and educational programs for wholesale retail and trying to build the uh the what we called a matrix which was a stupid name for a a, hmm. t- a tiered training program um that would kind of i mean kyle and i were really on this buzz back then of kind of making a barista a career a viable career option that's so often people talk about it as being like oh you know they wanted to be a career but we're kind of all full of shit that really does the salary doesn't doesn't support it the wages don't support it so how can you make barista an actual viable career option we had pretty lofty ways of doing that but um it's kind of interesting if you talk to kyle and charles now and other people that there's sort of there's a moving kind of does it the, the hopes for that have changed somewhat now people are kind of tending to accept that barista is often a transitional role for people that they're never going to stay there forever and you know you and i have spoken about it Colin, that like you know that there's only there's a few people it's a very small amount of people in the world who are baristas forever um, you know, and, 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 and either ambition or opportunity comes along and makes people want to do something else. Well, so I, think, either... I don't think we're that way. Uh, personally, I think we're, we're very, maybe, there are some positions, but I think there are probably 20 positions around the world where someone can be a barista and be like, like there are jobs in Australia that we all hear of at really busy coffee shops that are, they're paid a hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, mm-hmm. Now, how many of them there are, I don't know. And there's probably two or three equivalent jobs in, in the States and maybe two or three in Europe, and that's about it. Like, But I'm not sure we're a million miles away from it, but I think, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I think if you want to have the sort of, uh, you know, house, car, vacation every year, you know, support a family, a barista is not, is not really, a, is not really a, a viable option for that. No. And that's, and that's kind of, you know, if you, and I mean, we have a guy who works in Chicago who's worked, worked in the stores for 10 years and he seems very happy. He's married and has a great life and he, he's making that work and, you know, intelligence, he pays well. It doesn't, but I, I don't think it, it, it's, we're not paying stratospheric prices, you know, we definitely mm. pay more than most of the companies, but, um, I don't know. It's interesting. And then he, and it's also your culture you're in as well. You know, is your city LA, everyone tips way more, but it's far more expensive to live. Chicago yeah. don't tip as more, but it's way cheaper. You think of the baristas you hear of in Spain or in Italy, but then it's way cheaper to live in those places, you know? Hmm. Yeah, and then also they do alcohol as well. There's always this thing of, uh, oh, it's just like people want to go on and work in wholesale or work as a roaster. Or, um, yeah. And it's, I did it, I don't know if you saw it, but James Hoffman asked me to do an interview, a written interview for Coffee Jobs Board. And it was one, one of the questions was about being a barista and how, how it can help you move on. I was, but I said, be careful that you want to move on. You know what I mean? Like, cause, like, if you don't like hitting sales targets, don't move into wholesale. You know, if you don't mm-hmm. like manual labor, don't be a roaster. You know, it's like moving on for the sake of it is not always the thing to do. But yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so that just to answer your question, and it was it was doing running all that intelligence, and then uh, there was no one doing events at the time, and I said, sure, I'll look after events, and then. No one is doing the, the marketing efforts. I mean, Intelligentsia is a, is primarily a wholesale coffee company. It makes its bread and butter from selling coffee to restaurants, hotels, grocery stores, offices, and then our coffee shops 
are, and it's important to point this out, it's not that they're a marketing venture. They are there to represent kind of what we th- how we think coffee can be served. They're there to genuinely engage our communities and serve great coffee and create kind of distinct spaces that kind of add value to coffee and increase the value proposition. They're, but so they're not just vapid marketing efforts. That said, they also serve as the marketing for the company. They replace yeah. paid for advertising. They replace you know PR companies and all that stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> or they, should, they mitigate the need for it, I should say. So outside of that then, I just started doing stuff that I felt helped position the brand around that. So and, and now basically kind of cut to today, that is ultimately my job, is manage, managing the brand as it exists outside of retail. And I've, I've had involvement in retail and I've done a couple of store designs and kind of a couple of elements there, but my interest with coffee now has become very much kind of, it's a weird area, but it, it's, cr- it's creating a space for specialty coffee. It's cr- what, creating and how do, you, how do you position the brand so that, that a, value, a higher value proposition can, can seem fair. So, so what is your official title today then, Stephen, within Intelligentia? Because obviously that role was developed over the time. What's your official title within the business? Official title is Director of Communications, which is, is, is a title I made up. And uh, it's funny because we, ha- we had a company retreat uh, uh, about two, two, three years ago. And, you know, it was like, you know, trying to... Because Intelligentia's had a kind of some, some, some upheaval over the years and... Uh, we tried to kind of really lock, sit down and figure out what, what, what were we about, what do we want to be, and uh, what, our, what our challenges were. And the, one of the biggest kind of challenges was sort of need to be communications, like internal. Uh, so literally I, had like, I was like weeks after giving myself this title of director of communications. They're like, well, who's going to fix this problem of communications? And like I did not mean for my job to be this kind of internal kind of making sure everybody was informed in the company. But suddenly everyone just turned to me in the room and were like, well, I guess that's Stephen. So um, one of the things I do now is I try, I, I have a couple of things I do to kind of help try to keep the company better informed, but it's, it's, a, it's a constant battle. You'll never do it perfectly. I mean, we're in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Atlanta, LA, and to try to keep all of those people up to speed on everything all the time, whether it's kind of new staff joining, they're trying to make them aware of the legacy and the, and the history. You know, intelligence will be 20 years old this October. You know, there's a lot of it's done lots of stuff over the years, and you want every single person in the company to be kind of up to speed on that, and that's difficult. So you you know you you're constantly trying to over communicate, and and you know that that's just a it's a that's another part of my job. So the title Steve is is communications director, but it's I I wouldn't read much into that. But that's the thing. Like even anyone listening now, if they could, when you're in work on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, or whatever, and problems start happening at work, no matter what your job is there is a massive likelihood that the problem has happened because of a miscommunication, like mm-hmm. internal or external, like a customer has misinterpreted what you told them would happen or, you, or, or, or somebody has missed a point in the process along the way. So, Yeah, and, it's, and, and <clears throat> what's also fascinating is that you can also have over-communication can be the, can be the cause of miscommunication, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like too many emails in your inbox means stuff doesn't get you know written. And it, it, I think it's very true for America. A lot of people will say, like, email me. And, you know, I don't know if it's being Irish or something else that I'm kind of, I'm often more inclined to go over and just talk to somebody in person. But then they'll be like, okay, I know, I recognize what you're talking about. I see that this is a thing we've got to get done. Can you email me about it? Yeah. <laughs> you're just like, ah, <laughs> that just well, creates more time for everybody. It puts it in your list of things to do, and that's it. That's the only way I see it. 
Steve yeah. got me to do this. I, I could never understand this about Steve, but Steve would always say, yeah, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. Will you email me? I'm like, but I just told you. <laughs> yeah, and I know. Over the years, I've started to do it myself. Yeah. If you want me to do anything, I can't do it without an email, but I can't start stop working until I empty my inbox. So it's a great way to motivate me with this needs doing. Can't delete that email until I've done it. So I, I literally do work on it as a, as a working list. I'm, uh, I'm terrible for it. Um, you can actually make him do things he doesn't want to do because he oh, never he thinks about it. He, no. he does it and then thinks about, do I want to do this? Oh, fuck, I've already done it. <laughs> so so <laughs> anyone out there that wants anything done. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, Stephen, you, you, you kind of, you've obviously you've been in the, you've worked for Bewley's, who were you know, a massive company, you've worked for Square Mile, who were a startup company, you've worked for Intelligentsia. Um, it seems the way that baristas go at Intelligentsia, they go and set up their own thing. Uh, have you never had the motivation or kind of like, is that not something that excites you? Do you like working for that company environment that's already there? Um, or, or, or do you think at some point in the future you might go off and do your own thing? At some point I'll definitely do my own thing. Um, but there is, it's difficult because I, you see things all the time that you want to, you see opportunities to do things or present coffee. And, and, and I mean, I, I, I had to, to think of the right way to put this. I think an awful lot of how we serve coffee and talk about coffee, present coffee is, is heavily flawed. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very fascinated by the process of trying to change that and create, and, as I said before, create spaces that distinguish specialty coffee. Spaces and environments, experiences, visuals, narratives, all that stuff. I really enjoy that because I know coffee well, but I also feel like I have true intelligentsia. I've built up this understanding of uh, how other brands work, especially in hospitality and in beer and all this stuff. And I, I, I kind of... I. I have developed a pretty good network of friends who work in other industries. And and I'm, I really enjoy leveraging specialty coffee in a lifestyle branding context. And that's something I really enjoy, and, I, I'm, and I'm, that's what I do with Intelligentsia. And so I'm, I, while I definitely harbor hopes of doing my own thing one day, and I have lots of ideas of things I want to do, um, I'm, I'm really, I really enjoy what I get to do with Intelligentsia, that I get to wield the Intelligentsia brand and and put it in context that, for me, position it positively. That when someone sees a kind of bag of, you know, a new Jägerchef that costs twenty-five dollars a pound, um, they associate that with other things Intelligentsia's done in the past, and they think, yeah, that makes sense. I'll buy that. You know, that that that, that kind of I, I really enjoy that. So, yes, at some point, I definitely will want to do my own thing. Uh, but I, I enjoy what I get to do with Intelligentsia tremendously. So. I think, um, I think it's in, go ahead, sorry. Uh, so I, I think the, 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 your kind of uh, participation within with intelligence is kind of very, you, you're not somebody that kind of shouts about the, the role that you do there, and I think it, it's, it, I don't know whether I'm just not listening, but, but yeah, I, I think you kind of just go about your job and get on with it much more um, than mm. kind of shouting about we're doing an awesome job and I'm doing this, look at me. Um, do you think that's your personality coming through there or do you think that's Intelligentsia's personality coming through or, or what what do you think because you do so many amazing uh, things there I've got you know you look at like when you get your growers together for the for the summit there and you know you, you're having you know employee summits and you kind of all the work that you're doing with the buying programs that you have and everybody kind of you know you have to look it's not like you shout about them very well <laughs> like you know you, well so I guess the thing is I, 
Well, so I'm a big fan of showing rather than telling. You know, yeah. I, it's, I say that whenever I'm training competitors or competition, I'm like, you know, you should never have to say the words, I love coffee. Um, and I think, you know, coffee, I mean, this has been a well, uh, a well kind of, uh, what's the term? Uh, well-trodden narrative of saying that until, you know, one of especially coffee's big mistakes is trying to tell the world how great it was in a very kind of aggressive manner at like, you know, 7.30 a.m. On a, on a shitty rainy Tuesday morning. You know, you know when you're someone, when someone just wants a cup of coffee and a way to work, and we're like shouting at them about how special this is, and I think you know that's that's that doesn't work. It doesn't resonate. People don't want to hear that. They want to have a great experience, and they want to have they want to feel compelled towards something because it feels special and they they have it has some kind of emotional resonance with them, and and then I think that's when you're allowed to say something. Or that's when you're allowed to talk, and so intelligentsia. I think it's it's particularly fascinating for me because you have such a well-established um there's such integrity behind the brand there is so much work that gets done all the time behind trying trying to make better systems trying to you know better support uh, to producers better kind of all the ecw events the the in-season issues like there's so many things going on all the time to make the, to try and make the quality better um that but but what we what we found is that you, you take all of that that kind of legwork that's happening it's very difficult to try and make that be your first story, your first talking point with the customer. And so what I kind of enjoy is trying to, is, is playing with the brand to make it remarkable somehow, either by because of clever collaborations, clever events, um, clever uh, you know, retail ideas, that there, there are things that the brand does that prompt interest. And then when you have that interest, that then prompts further kind of curiosity. And then people can say, well, what, why does the coffee taste this way? Or why, is, or why are you doing this? You know, why does this look so pretty or whatever it is? And then you, can, you have permission to start telling that story. And I think, so maybe that's kind of why I kind of don't do that. So like the craft beer festival thing I do with Good Beer Hunting, the uppers and downers, you know, that's, you know, at its simplest for us, it's, it's, it's putting our brand in front of hundreds and hundreds of craft beer, you know, people, because they are absolutely our customer. They are people who will spend a lot of money on a culinary beverage and putting kind of craft coffee, uh, making, you know, really pushing it in front of them. If that makes them think of craft coffee the same way, fantastic. And, I, you know, the big problem there is that you, right now you have craft beer is sort of appropriating craft coffee, but using it in a commodity fashion. Because uh, often all you taste is roast. And so, you know, we're trying to make a change there. But, um, uh, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling a bit here. Does that answer your question at all? I think so. Yeah, no, I think yeah. and, and, and I think another thing you don't really shout about is the work that you do with WCE. So you've been fairly heavily involved in lots of the rule changes that are coming up for next mm -hmm. year's. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done with WCE, a little bit about the rules that are, are there, and then, then the kind of goal and ideas for the future? Sure. Um, well, I got involved with WCE right after I won. I kind of helped chair an events committee and um, that kind of sprung up right afterwards. And we, if you remember Atlanta, <clears throat> Colin, you'll remember it. Um, do you remember the whole area we had with the um, the 
the fourth bar area that had all the projections up on the wall, kind of saying how like coffees were, how to score cappuccinos, and we were serving all the. There was a yeah. you know three station bar, and people were doing sig drinks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you had Mike Phillips doing a sig drink, and then you had um, Scott Lucy did a sig drink, and I remember. Yeah, I remember. That. Yeah, and we had and all the drinks were being served competition standard, and there was these kind of cool projections done on the wall, kind of explaining how judges assess each drink, and so that was one of the first kind of uh, things I sort of helped, sort of uh, kind of push with uh, the team there which explains it, why Jen was washing dishes behind it oh was she yeah yeah you oh yeah sorry my, I, th- I thought you meant Jen Ruggler yeah my yeah. My, my 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 wife to be wife now is there <laughs> working away I think she was also doing the scores as well somewhere working with Tony uh, Trusello but anyway so she uh, ever since then I've always had an involvement and I, kind of, I, I did an awful lot of judging and did a lot of judging of the worlds and then kind of moved from there into emceeing and developing training programs for judging and all that kind of stuff and uh, I did my first scene with you, Stephen. I remember that in um, uh, where was it? Maastricht, uh, the coffee yeah. spirits, where we where we slowly got absolutely hammered. Uh, tasting that was, all of the drinks. yeah, that was funny. Yeah. Maastricht was a that was a uh, that's a story. Um, but Car the gosh, <laughs> uh, I think the word you're looking for. <laughs> your your words, not mine. Um, the, but 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 to your point, Steve, about like that I've. I've done, people have seen a lot of my fucking face, you know, they don't need to, I don't need to, kind of, I don't, I, I, I probably do have a little sensitivity about not wanting to kind of be too shouting and kind of trying to get attention. I, I don't, I don't go on Twitter too often and I, I have my Instagram feed, but I don't, you know, I, I think there's a, a sense that everyone's seen enough too much of me, you know, by way of kind of that stuff and the competition. So I'm very happy to kind of be in behind the scenes a little bit more and having kind of, that's just kind of an intelligentsia too I'm very happy to kind of put other spokesperson find find other people who can be spokespeople for the company um, because of probably that being so visible for so long and feeling like you're you're, part, you're owned by that kind of visibility so um, going back to WCE then um, uh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so today I'm chair of the development committee and that is a group of people who are national body representatives uh, former competitors um former judges or existing judges um and people have just been very involved in the competitions for a very long time and we are uh working to institute some changes to make the competition uh i think a better reflection of where the industry is at that the competition has not really changed in any kind of massive meaningful way in a very long time and that, and it's had you know it's grown to be the premier coffee making competition in the world um and you know it's it's it, it's it's the the rigidness of it has been incredibly useful and continues to be incredibly useful and i you know but i think there are more and more with, with the kind of internet now making the world so much smaller and you know the new whatever thing colin does in the cafe next week is sort of now being kind of tried and tested all around the world within days that means that you know the competition is sort of it's it's its format has become somewhat antiquated and and its ability to sort of show off the diversity of the co- of coffee industry um is becoming it's less pliable and so we all you know I'm on the board of directors for world coffee events and we feel like you know while we have all these great new competitions at like the world brewers cup and you know cup tasters etc we felt that the Barista championship needed a bit of a uh update uh, to, to make it a better platform for, sh- for celebrating those, those, uh, those trends and changes. At the same time, we didn't want to abandon its educational function. That, yeah. that, 
that I often say the score sheet for the WBC is the cheapest trading manual in the world. And if everyone in the world, if every coffee shop was just a bit kind of abiding by that by the tech score sheet, we would see a a sort of huge jump in coffee quality. Yeah. Do you think you'll get back involved back in judging as well? Do I? Yeah. Uh, yes, by virtue of this rule. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a bit evasive, but. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's interesting. Well, I, I remember in London, there, there was a rule at the time. I don't even know if it's in place anymore. But you had to do a certain amount of competitions before you could be a WBC judge. And yeah, I remember two, sitting two two years, two different countries. Yeah. So, and um, was this in London? You didn't judge in Atlanta, though, did you? I did. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. It must be in Atlanta. Yeah. So I was sitting in in, in the crowd, and somebody was saying to me, "Oh, you know, I thought you had to be a judge for for two years before you could judge." And how come Stephen Morrissey gets to jump the queue? And I remember we were sitting there watching. I was like, "Yeah, okay, that's a bit strange." It's always because he's the world champion, you know. But the rules are the rules. And then we were watching, and then whoever you're judging, uh, finished the routine, and the three judges and the two tech judges got up and walked back into the the room, and we were like, "Oh, look, he hasn't noticed that they've left." And we are kind of laughing amongst ourselves. And then it was like, okay, this is going on a bit longer than we thought. And you had this pencil and you were hammering through the score sheets and looking back at your notes and writing more notes and like counting things <laughs> up. And kind of like, and you, like, you must have spent 10 minutes sitting there by yourself before you realized that there was nobody else that. there. And I was like, wow. It was like you knew that somebody had, had questioned your, 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 kind of your, your, uh, your ability to be there. And you just answered them with this amazing display of, I'm going to put so much work into this score sheet that I deserve to be here. And after that, I was just like, Jesus, you deserve to be there. Because I'd never seen a judge, and even to this day, I'd never seen judges that were so focused on that score sheet. And is that something you try to get across with the judges when in, within these training programs and, and emphasize I, how important that is? That's very nice of you to say all that. I, I um, actually, I kind of remember that time. Um, and just to say, I had actually judged, I judged in lots of countries before I competed. I had judged. I had judged in Canada and stuff a bunch of times. So I, I had. I had. I had kind of ticked that box yeah. of judging a bunch. Um, we were just ill-informed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As usual, as usual, just working off miscommunication. Um, but uh, the, the, yeah. I mean, Mike Strumpf, um, sort of well-known uh, U.S. judge, judging the worlds this year as well. Um, from, uh, yeah, and uh, he's it's just water, right? It's just water decaf. Um, yeah. His his line that I've always kind of loved is that you want to fill out a score sheet that you don't you don't have to be there to explain. Yeah, and I've always sort of believed not very very much that you know, and and certainly as a kind of former competitor, you're you're acutely aware of how much work someone's put in, and even as we celebrate judges who put in like you know two whole days of training before the you know before the competition, that pales in significance to the months that a competitor has done. In preparing for it and so I've always felt huge pressure to kind of provide a score sheet that is that is comprehensive in its, in its sort of in how it's done and you know I we used to and that was definitely something as I was involved in the judges certification committee and you know and that's all kind of taken various forms over the years that was something I kind of really cared an awful lot about was how score sheets are filled out and I was very I started judging a little bit again last year and I did some regional judging um, in the states and you know, I felt that same kind of nervousness that kind of like God, like how to do all this properly and how to make sure that you're kind of. And it's very, very difficult to be a good judge. Is a real skill, and I've done a lot of shadow, you know, shadow judging and score sheet modifications. And you know, uh, last year in um, some of the regionals in the U.S., I helped you kind know, of the team kind of 
as, you know, as, as score sheets are going back, going through the score sheets and making sure that there was actually a note, a corresponding note for every box filled. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's, you know, you, you'll meet competitors now and again and say, like, I had this score for my Percon and it was only like a 3.5 and there was no note referencing it. And it's like, fair enough, like you, you get to be grievance by that, but it's also like you have to acknowledge what that's like. And that's why I, my, you know, the best advice to any, comp, you know, aspiring competitor is judge. Yeah. Understand, understand what that dynamic feels like because you will realize how to be better at it. So yeah. we spoke a bit before about the, the viability of, of the career of a barista. Mm-hmm. Um, if we broaden the, sc- the scope of a WBC judge, okay, do you think mm-hmm. that, in, that now or in the not-too-distant future there's a possibility that we could have someone who is professionally a WBC judge and it could also be, let's say, a Q grader and like a shop auditor and could, could be that person that can viably charge for that, that wealth of information that they have in their head. So that could become in itself a job because if I think, I, th- I, think it's, board, I think it's already happening but yeah but w- think most people are doing it as like they're judging and then they also have a job like as a manager of a coffee shop and then and then there's also that weird thing of like if I'm a WBC judge what can I charge for can I train baristas is that ethical can I can I put the WBC stuff on my cards I know there's yeah yeah is it definitely towards that is that one of the goals of the wc to kind of to create that career path for judges as much as the baristas you know i think it probably hasn't been articulated as clearly as that but i i think we you know it's important to remember the wc is owned by sca and sae and that you know it, it is a it is an events arm of those two entities yeah and so what it does is in is in the service of promoting specialty coffee and so I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it'd be, if, you're, if you have it from that perspective, then, and you think about those, those two associations, their larger goals of being kind of more uh, of, you know, accrediting people to educate and, and, you know, generate better awareness of that, that great coffee exists and that, you know, it's, it's, fun, it's fantastic to drink and what it, what it takes to make it fantastic. Uh, then, then yes, I would say yes. I don't think it's been as as articulated as in the way you put it. I don't think there's a, a necessarily a six month plan in place to make what you're saying exist exactly like that. But I, I would certainly subscribe to that same idea that the more, the more WCE and SCA and SCE can make those kind of things happen, the better. And so yes, I, and that would be actually quite nice because you're right. I think baristas would kind of, there probably are many people out there who would tick those boxes and have those skill sets developed. I'm, 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 I feel like I'm rambling an awful lot. Am I giving you guys very long-winded answers? No, they're very thought-provoking. No, no, I'm, kind of, I'm deep in thought listening to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like I've asked loads of questions. Steve, you ask a question. Yeah, so, so I mean, I guess the question I, I'm, I'm most interested in, the rule changes that were announced at WBC this year, um, yes. can you explain them a little? And also the thought behind um, why they've been brought in? Sure, well, so... I guess I spoke a little bit about why they've been brought in before that, you know, it's, you know, just, it's time for an update. Um, the, so one of the changes is one last tech judge. Um, the large reason for this is that, you know, we just, and this is a, this is not a requirement of national bodies. That's important to point out. National bodies can still have two tech judges if they want. This is a, a change for the world stage. Um, and granted, a lot of national bodies might choose to subscribe to this format. That's up to them. Um, but at a world stage, you often don't see the same degree of variance within tech judging they might have before. And, 
you know, we, we feel that the caliber of world tech judges is incredibly high. And when reviewing the scores of <clears throat> most tech judges, the consistency shown between any pair of tech judges feel, suggests like that there's not really things being missed. That it just felt a bit, it felt a bit superfluous, mm-hmm. basically. And, and this is also in kind of, there's a lot of people on that stage sometimes, you know? There's a lot of people standing around the person making coffee. And between shadow judges and, you know, the head judge and two tech judges and scorekeepers and volunteers and, you know, busters and all that stuff. And so one of the things we were looking at doing maybe is kind of seeing if we could, if we could you know, trim that a little bit. And so we kind of looked at areas to do that. And, and I think just this felt like an easy one to do. Um, I don't think that was hugely controversial. The one last tech judge. Yeah. Do you? It's, a, it's a weird one with the tech judges because a lot of the stuff that were like, you could in theory argue, okay, that once you get to the WBC, that you don't, you don't need tech judges. Okay. That yeah. and for the reason that, okay, up until about 2011, all right, nobody was making 30 milliliter espressos. Right. Nobody was. And, but it was in the rules. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and then, obviously, shots have gotten a lot longer in the last two or three years, and now everybody is, you know. But it's only recently that that, that, that oh, it was 35 mil, I think, wasn't it? Not the, the, the 25 to 30, 35, yeah. Yeah, and even, like, at that stage, there's so there's so many particulars of, of how a coffee sh- should be made that it's almost like, um, at that level, there's, al- there's almost an argument that you could say, yeah, do what you like. Let's just make it taste good. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but at the same time, it, the the the, re- the competition is there as a structure for quality and as a training tool, like you mentioned. So, I, right. So I, I think that, and that's where the kind of nuance between national body and uh, at worlds exists. That can you know the competition could be pliable enough where its function at a national level could be different to its functional world level. Would you consider you know? two rules, like two rule books, essentially? I mean, potentially. I, I think, you know, we've definitely, some of the easing on the score, I mean, there's been definitely lots of small changes over the last couple of years in the world, in this competition. And what you just said is sort of the reason behind a lot of it is like, why, why be so specific when we can just assess it? And why be so, so specific about technique or volume sizes or things like that? Let's just look to assess it in the cup. Uh, and let's not have WBC and WCE being this kind of dictating these kind of very strict standards. But I, I can tell you there's, there's def- that's definitely a tension that we constantly come up against mm-hmm. is, you know, we're, we, we are listening to the community. We have, we, are, we have a great team of people involved who are um, helping us, who have their finger on the pulse about what's happening at the best coffee shops in the world. Uh, but also we've got people involved who are at the front line in developing countries where specialty coffee is still very very young and they are there's definitely some pushback now and again against introducing changes yeah. i mean like you know we joke about the cult the the crema the color of crema rule mm. you know that took years to inst- to get rid of you know years then and that's because and that's i don't get frustrated about that i think you just have to think about that as, as like you know the, too many barista competitors think the competition is there to serve them yeah. And they think like, God damn this competition for not realizing the, the brilliance of my my subtle technique innovations. Because yeah, you're and never pre- gonna come up with a rigid, a rigid set of rules that will satisfy everybody. And I think yeah. like you have you have like ourselves like me, <laughs> uh, giving out about certain things about competition 
uh, all the while loving it. Like that's the sure. thing is that I I hope that comes across if you ever like see anything that, that myself or Steve would say anything because we'll go we'll be critical of this critical of that, but in the back of our minds we we presume that everybody knows that like this is to me is is an incredible thing that we have in the industry and we all love it so much. Do you take it personally when people have a have a go or do, do you ever get frustrated with people? <laughs> I do. Should and take I get, a more I get... active role or? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of bitching from the sidelines, and I think there's a lot of people who it's very easy to have that and they don't contribute. Personally, for me, the reason I'm so involved is that the, the winning the competition has given me so much. I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to be financially stable my entire life because I won that competition. You know, like that's no, that's not a small thing, unless I manage to fuck it up by, <laughs> by, by swearing too much in a podcast. But <laughs> the, uh, you know, that that's very. I so I feel huge depth of gratitude for that, and so for me, spending time helping it. Is, is at least I can do. So um, uh, I don't I don't take it personally, but I, I just think people get a bit myopic, and they they, they fail to sort of see the, the broader picture. Um, I would, I think it would be a positive thing. Um, maybe I shouldn't say this. Um, say what? it. <laughs> say it. Say it. I, I would say that uh, it would be nice if we can get to a point where the national bodies around the world. And just to be clear, national bodies means like, you know, the national specialty cough associations, you know, yes. So, Steve, do you run the UK one? Is that, are you that? Uh, for the minute. <laughs> I feel like you're, I feel like you've been in a, I feel like you've been in a cupboard this entire call, that you're just like hidden away under a table and we're like, hey, Steve, do you have a comment? And this little voice, you know, this little, you No, know. This, is, this is what Colin does when we have guests on that I'm not really allowed to talk very much. And it's probably for the better because I kind of doesn't like me talking on the podcast because I normally say bad things. But yeah, no, I am. I'm national coordinator for the UK at the moment. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so basically, the the use around the world, it would be fantastic if we can create tools for you guys to spread education, so that the competition really becomes a function of celebrating, you know, taste and performance and knowledge and 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 uh, and, and just skill. And that it, 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 that we that we take the educational function from that, or that requirement, and push it a little bit more on the national bodies. And the problem is right now that the we're just not there yet globally. That there's some countries like probably UK it's a very you know robust. I think SAE especially is a very robust, comprehensive educational program. But like I don't know how well like Toga's you, national body is doing if it even has one. You know, and you want to think that was a random country, right? Uh, so you want to. You know, that, that's kind of... The WBC right now is the most well-known, most referenced version of that, of that, that function. And, we, you know, it would be great if we can move that towards the parents. By parents, you mean SASE. And um, have them kind of take on that charge. And I think you're seeing that in the Barista Guild of Europe, the Barista Guild of America. You know, so many exciting things happening down, down in Asia right now. So, like, that, look at that and hope that that can become the force of education and the more success we see in that, the the less, the more it frees our competitions to become really uh, dynamic platforms. Awesome. How's that? How's I that? I think the biggest, <laughs> where the biggest problem though with making them into those dynamic platforms is one, the continuity of uh, of chapters. So constantly, chapters are reinventing the wheel every couple of years because somebody gets burnt out from being involved in it. Yes. So yeah. you see, you get the, you, you see these people giving everything for eighteen months, two years, and by the end of it, they want to get as far away from it as they possibly can because there's no 
there's no support kind of for the uh, on the on the levels above the chapters. Um, but also, I, I think it's it's really difficult to when you've got a bunch of volunteers standing up there doing it to get them to do those things. And I, and I know it's the same being part of the WC committees that you're volunteering, but actually putting on a competition as a volunteer or putting on six competitions as we put on this year, it's it's really hard work. And you just end, that ends up all you end up doing as a chapter is being a comp, an events manager and Absolutely. not being able to do take those educational uh, elements forward or you know build on what what we have and so imagine imagine a world then when when the when like you know there are toolkits available for you to you know like hey you want to do a craft beer event like and and or a you know coffee and cheese event or whatever it is or you want to do a a a domestic you know home coffee user event or whatever it is that we can have like here's the one we did recently and and here's all the tools need to do this and here's how we do it and we're going to send you these six people from these countries who've had experience with this to get this done like that's not impossible that could be really easily done, but it, 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 uh, it just we're not there yet. But I, I think what you just spoke about is, is a really big problem, that, it, that it's a lot of thankless work and people get burnt out. And, you know, and, and, and there, we're not, I mean, this is the kind of the, I feel like the diversity word is the big word you just hear all the time these days, that we need this, this, this brown drink that we all love needs diversity to make it, just to make its kind of, inherent diversity shine yeah first thing i think that there, there needs to be and it's very easy for me to say here and say this is how it should be but obviously because it's not as simple as just rolling it out but like i was at a a trade show in, in malaysia no in sorry in thailand and mm-hmm. they had their national championships on and it just struck me um as completely understandable but also very very odd that there wasn't one person from wce there do you know what I mean? Like it was. It there was, probably was. There would have been a rep. Uh, yeah, there was one actually. There was um, Fiona uh, Sutani, so she was there. Yeah. But I mean, there's no. She's running the show like that. But there's like, it, it just. I think it was just because I was so far from home, and I could see how I didn't recognize anybody else besides her that was there. And this thing was happening independent of all of the people that I knew, and especially coffee community. I was like, whoa, this this thing happens in every country like this, and. It, Obviously, but it just—it was very stark for me at that moment in time. But it occurred well, we, to me that, like, a really the wheel good fifty-two times a year. Yeah, but like, like what, it would, <laughs> what would be really good would be to have that almost road show that went out. So there'd be like four pods that went to four different countries every week and, and rolled it out around the world, you know. And obviously, that yeah. takes a lot of time and organizing and effort and money. But in in such a scenario, then we could then you could you could centralize sponsorship. You could make systems more efficient, get judging standards up, and create that kind of like that traveling roadshow to go spread the word of specialty coffee is it is that that's an it. end game or is that like just I, I think that's a great idea but you know um, you know I can I can't wait to see you help with that you know that's, <laughs> honestly that's kind of it like it's, it's, it's yeah <laughs> I'm like, uh, washing my hair no it's I'm here yeah, running across China sorry <laughs> the, the the I think that's exactly it though it is it's not ideas are easy you know it, it's perfect. putting the putting the grunt work in yeah. you know it, it's it's and you have to there's a lot of kind of local politics in different countries and lots of kind of you're dealing with kind of i mean so many countries still have like just two or three coffee shops that we could call specialty you know if even and and so you if even yeah and it's like it's it's just it's we it's very easy when you're at the cutting edge to forget how the entire world is in it, how this whole thing is in its infancy 
you know and and you look at you get and if, to get frustrated that you're not seeing sort of your narrative being the only narrative and you get very frustrated by that people doing last year classes or had coffee one-on-ones yeah and yet that that's the main goal i mean that's that's mainly what we need i used to always judy murray back when i was doing working at beauties and i did some wholesale training for them she used to talk about how um you know the first thing you should do is cleaning because it's often all they'll, all they'll remember you know <laughs> that just get cleaning and it's god if we just had machines being clean wouldn't that be fantastic yeah and i, I think it's really important we don't we don't lose sight of how where everyone else is at and I, I i i feel that because I, I work at intelligentsia coffee for god's sake you know like you know that's you know one well, of the, do, you know we, do, we, we get stuck in that echo chamber don't we where we're all talking to each other and we all think everybody knows everything and then you actually step outside of that chamber and actually no you know nobody knows anything you know we're still dealing with you know big chains that are pressing buttons and not necessarily even you know using a, a traditional machine or whatever so yeah it's really easy for us to think oh this is why aren't we doing this when there are the basics of there's dirty machines all over the country absolutely and I think you there's not a city in the world I think and I haven't been to Australia so maybe this is a bit this is the one maybe example well I say well, example that's well I think there's not a city in the world that you can go to and be and if you don't know where the good coffee shops are that you can go and be guaranteed a good coffee you know, you could easily go to all the hot cities right now, whether it's New York or LA or London, and you could go there and only drink bad coffee the entire time and leave and think that that city has no good coffee. That is very, very easy. That is a very, very plausible scenario. If you and and I think we get excited saying, "Oh, that, that city is blowing up. That has six good coffee shops." Yeah. You know. That's <laughs> true. It's, yeah. it's, I think we're we're in danger here of having our longest ever tamper tantrum. So I I got some questions I want to ask you we wrap it up uh, the sure. one is a personal one and, and the other one's a very quick fire just one word answer one so the personal one is where can I get my Steemo body pillow from um, <laughs> I've been looking quite a lot uh, I've been searching high and low on eBay for used ones um, <laughs> where can I get one from and did you pay Sprudge to make it uh, I don't know and no <sighs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I honestly don't think they ever actually made it. I think it was just sort of a digital mock-up. But I, I haven't. Uh, I haven't talked to them about it. But I did have some friends who like, who were just so perplexed by it. people who like know me and didn't don't don't know about my coffee stuff, like which is like, I would advise all people to have friends that aren't in coffee. It's a, it's a great great way to live. If all your friends are in coffee, it's it's just it's a dark world. Can you um, can you briefly tell us how your brother described you during the best man speech? <laughs> I misquoted him the last time, but I think it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Uh, he, uh, what was it? He said, he was kind of talking about how I won the competition. And he said, for anyone who doesn't know what the World Barista Championship is, it's basically a hobbies club for people who love non-alcoholic hot beverages. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, and he, yeah. he's actually, he's getting married in Italy in, in uh, three weeks. So I'm working on his best man speech right now. So I'm, I'm giving the talk. So I'm trying to, he loves reminding everyone that he taught me how to make coffee originally, but um, yeah, he actually Chris Chris Chris's design company has done they did, they did the branding for Square Mile and the website and they did um, they've done some work for uh, World Coffee events too over the years. It's called One Darnley Road. Awesome. Did you have one more, Stephen? So, one what these are the one word questions. So, Chicago or LA? Uh, uh, what? <laughs> Chicago like, or LA? 
No, choose one. Uh, Chicago. Chicago or Dublin? Ooh. Say it, Stephen. <laughs> uh, <Don't> Birmingham. Probably Chicago. Uh, Chicago coffee scene or London coffee scene? London coffee scene. Macchiato or cappuccino? Or macchiato? <laughs> That's what I thought you said. <laughs> Absolutely cappuccino. <laughs> I hate I hate macchiatos. I only wrote that one down because you were saying that you did macchiatos before. Um, Guatemala or Rwanda? The way you say Just those two words. Competition coffees. Um, I'd probably go with uh, Rwanda. Yeah. Uh, and the last one, Kenya or Ethiopia? Ethiopia, definitely. I love Kenyans, but you can't drink them all day. You can't. <laughs> That's my quick fire questions. I'm going to try and do that with every guest. I, lo- I love that we didn't talk about the... I can't believe we didn't get the grinder stuff or milk stuff in here. That's great. I was sure, I was sure you'd hand me on that. There's always going to be a next time, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that means we have to do another one. It does, it does. And I think, uh, yeah, we'd definitely love to get you on again. And um, thank you so much. So uh, I think, uh, yeah, that was enthralling. And I think this is a really going to enjoy listening to this one. And um, yeah, I think you've uh, you've already gone down as one of the, the great Barista champions. And I think a lot of the work that you've done the last few years is, has proven that you've, uh, you've greater skill sets in other areas too. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with the future. Thanks very much, lads. Keep up the good work. Cheers. Thank you, Steve. All the best.